Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Forensic Sherlock and More. Now, today is our final episode. No! So we're doing a bonus episode on my favorite TV show, BBC Sherlock. And as always, I'm your host, Annabelle. And I'm your other host, Kayla. And being completely honest, we are both obsessed with this show. I mean, what's not to love? There's drama, humor, romance, mysteries, of course, and obviously forensic science. But is any of that science actually real? That is the question that we will be exploring today. From postmortem bruising to Lucard's exchange principle, the science in BBC Sherlock. Of course, the series romanticizes everything, but the bases of Sherlock's actions are drawn from real science. So the first episode is The Study in Pink, which is the pilot episode of the series and my all-time favorite episode. Mine too. It is based on my favorite Sherlock book, The Study in Scarlet. Anyways, our first interaction with Sherlock is when he is whipping a corpse with a writing crop to determine what bruises appear after death. He is using this information to determine the outcome of a person's alibi, most likely proving, based on postmortem bruising, whether or not this individual had anything to do with a murder. So, in real life, this equates to wound analysis of a body during an autopsy, which, of course, is when a corpse is dissected to determine cause of death if you don't know what an autopsy is. The pathologist can determine if injuries like bruises are antemortem, perimortem, or postmortem. Okay, so what do all of those terms mean? It's just a lot of mortem, if you know what I mean. So, antemortem is before death, perimortem is during or at the time of death, and postmortem is after death. So, understanding when these injuries occurred helps to determine the cause of death and what happened to the body afterwards. Focusing back on bruises, they can also reveal shape of a weapon or direction of an attack. So, for example, boots can leave a footprint as a bruise on skin if a person is kicked, A pipe or a bar can leave a long straight line on a person, so that can help with weapon analysis to identify a weapon. Hands can also leave bruises around the neck from strangulation, and while they don't leave a clear-cut hand mark on the neck, it would be a blob that would signify that the person was choked to death. Oh, and this definitely helps. Um, There's a CSI Miami episode I once watched. I can't remember the season or what the name of the episode was but they were trying to figure out who was actually the abuser in one of these cases. And they realized that based on the size of the bruises left on the abuse victim, that it couldn't have come from a man like everybody was suspecting. It had to have come from a woman, which led them to who the abuser was. So Annabelle, what are some other examples, maybe in relation to an autopsy or a crime scene of antemortem, perimortem, and postmortem bruises, injuries, etc.? Antemortem injuries would be a broken bone from a few years ago that is identified on a x-ray of a corpse. Perimortem could be bruises around the neck from strangulation, or it could be a bullet wound to the head. It is what causes the death or what occurs during the time of death. Postmortem could be stab wounds from a frenzied killer who repeatedly stabbed their victim even after they were dead, or it could also be an animal picking apart a corpse. So, and a little bit of book references in here. In Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, one of my all-time favorite mystery books, the doctor on board the train, who is also the medical examiner for this all intents and purposes, he determines that at least some of the victim's dozens of stab wounds had to have occurred after the victim was already dead. And he determined this due to some bleeding, some of the patterns, and a bunch of other stuff. 
But long story short, some of those stab wounds were postmortem stab wounds. I love that book and the movie was amazing. I like the movie too. It was so good. Perfect movie. Okay. <laughs> anyway, on to the next episode of Sherlock, The Great Game. And in this episode, Sherlock tests a biological substance found at a crime scene in his lab. So he finds that the substance is blood that has been frozen, meaning that nobody actually bled out at the crime scene. It was just spilt there. And Sherlock also does DNA profiling on the sample to determine who the blood belongs to. So his actions are based off serology, which is the study and identification of biological samples, such as blood, saliva, semen, sweat, and any other bodily fluids. And so if you're looking for this in maybe a TV show, in NCIS Season 3, Episode 9, the early seasons, the episode is called Frame Up. There are just a bunch of body parts that are found on a marine base. Yikes. And some of the blood found on the lone calf was different from that of who was determined to be the victim. So they used DNA analysis and a bunch of other stuff to try and figure out who that blood belonged to. That is serology. Good job. So Sherlock also does DNA profiling on the blood samples, which is realistic because often the samples used for serology are shared with DNA analysts to determine who the fluid belongs to. And current forensic scientists use similar laboratory equipment as seen in Sherlock, just with a lot less drama and way more PPE. Yeah, that's what I've noticed with Sherlock. He just does not care for both the book version and the real, like the BBC version. Yeah, they just don't care for PPE. Yeah, the most I've seen him wear in regards to PPE is a pair of gloves. I was just about to say that. Like, he always has like a pair of gloves, but that's it. No mask, no lab coat, nothing. I remember in the very first episode when he goes to examine the crime scene in the study in pink, he walks in with nothing on. He walks in with no PPE on while everybody else is getting into like hazmat suits. I remember that. I'm just like, okay, so I get you're like a genius and all, but like maybe don't disrupt the crime scene. Just a thought, but eh, it's Sherlock. We let everything slide. Yes. Okay, so also in this episode of The Great Game, Sherlock studies pollen on the bottom of a shoe to find the original location of the pair of shoes from over 20 years ago, which ended up being Sussex, and this leads him to the owner's identity. And Sherlock mimics the techniques of real paleontologists for forensic cases by using the mud on the shoe to map out geographical locations of the owner with pollen found within the mud. If you don't know, paleontology is the study of pollen, spores, and other acidic-resistant microscopic plant bodies. That's oddly specific. <laughs> yes. And in a forensic setting, it is used to prove and disprove connections of objects or people to a specific or general geographical location. So basically what you're telling me is that if someone is a murderer, a random person on the street... If they somehow have, like, a little bit of random pollen on their sweater that they wore when they were murdering someone, why you wouldn't change out of that sweater beyond me? So it's possible to identify where those samples came from and then potentially pin down a location for the crime? That is exactly what I'm saying. So even tiny particles of pollen can place a murderer to a specific location. But this doesn't always happen because plants can encompass many, many vast areas of land. So though they might have pollen for a specific plant, it doesn't point them down to a specific area because that plant is everywhere. 
but Sherlock example is a little far-fetched, so here is an actual example of pollen used to pin a murderer to a specific location. So in 1959, a man went missing during a trip down the Danube River in Vienna, Austria. No body was found, but the case was presumed to be a homicide. And on one of the suspect's shoes was mud. And so a sample was sent to a palynologist who determined that there was elder, willow, spruce, and a 20 million year old hickory pollen within the mud. And there is one specific area near the river with these combination of plants. So the suspect was so shocked that the investigators knew the exact location that he confessed and led them to where the body was. I guess you have to know when you're beaten. And you definitely know when you're beaten when investigators know exactly where the body is from some pollen. That's just such a weird combination. 20 million year old hickory pollen. Like, that's just so incredibly specific. I feel like there's no way that guy could have gotten away with it. I mean, especially since there's not that many 20 million year old hickories around, at least I think. Yeah, maybe you should have thought that one out a little bit more. So moving on to our next episode, now we have the Reichenbach Fall. And in this episode, Sherlock identifies the substances in the residue of a suprint to determine where the kidnapper has been before the kidnapping. And Sherlock uses his knowledge of Lacard's exchange principle to understand that the kidnapper left behind traces of his previous locations in his shoe print, which helps track him down. And Lacard's exchange principle states that when two objects touch, there is a transfer of material. So, as an example, if someone cuts their hand on some broken glass, like there are shards of glass that are embedded in the cut, and then there's also blood from that person left behind in the larger pieces of glass— is that Lacard's exchange principle? Yes. This knowledge is readily used by forensic scientists to connect a person to a crime scene because the individual will always leave something behind and they will always take something with them, whether that's fingerprints, pollen, fibers, bodily fluids, DNA, DNA, other microscopic organisms. It could be anything. <laughs> so both parts, either what's left behind, like a fingerprint, or what's taken, such as fibers from the victim, can be used as evidence in a case. So basically, another example of this principle is when a victim tries to maybe defend themselves, and especially on crime shows, investigators will probably test for DNA or other substances under the victim's fingernails if there is evidence of a struggle. And so their attacker's DNA is left behind under the fingernails or maybe on the wounds, and the victim's DNA is also left in any wounds the attacker may have sustained in the struggle. Both can be tested as evidence. Yes, that is a perfect example, and that would be used in a lot of court cases as well. And fun fact, this principle was created by Dr. Edmund Lacard, and he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. Of course, France would have their own Sherlock Holmes. I wonder who the U.S. Sherlock Holmes is. Do we have one? Mm. No? Not that I know of. I'll come back to you on that one. We'll, we'll figure out who the American Sherlock Holmes is. There probably isn't one, because Sherlock is Sherlock. Okay. Well, also in this episode of the Reichenbach Fall, Sherlock uses a trail of footwear impressions to determine the shoe size, height, gait and walking pace and Sherlock correctly exemplifies footprint analysis in the series which of course is used by current forensic scientists 
And of course, if you want any more information about footprints, check out one of the previous episodes, which is all about footprints in the Sherlock Holmes novels and short stories. So, despite the exaggerated cases and a lack of PPN precautions overall, Sherlock displays real-life forensic methods to solve cases. Definitely, I love this show, and it has only spurred my interest in forensic science because I just love researching whether the facts that are portrayed in the series are right or wrong. For example, the footprints from Reichenbach Fall were made visible with black lights and linseed oil, but that would have not worked in real life since dried linseed oil is barely visible under UV light. See, that's what's so much fun. We get to be like the continuity and fact checkers. That does it for us today. Thank you for joining us on Forensic Sherlock and More. Bye. Goodbye and thank you for listening.